Reading is just a habit you gotta form in all of life. Books don't change people's sentences. Reading good, solid, reformed, Puritan literature, reading especially the classics, that's had the biggest impact on my life. Well, good day, and welcome to another episode of the Reformers Bookcast, a podcast hosted by Reformers Bookshop. My name is Tom Eglinton, the manager here at Reformers, and today we are joined by Dr. William Edgar. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Edgar. No, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, now, for those of, of our listeners who don't know of you, uh, would you introduce yourself for us? Okay. Um, let's see. I'm 78 years old. I just recently retired from 33 years at Westminster Seminary. And previous to that, I was in Aix-en-Provence. Um, and previous to that, I was in Greenwich, Connecticut. So I've had three basic uh, careers. Um, I'm an amateur jazz pianist. Uh, I've taught apologetics most of my life. Um, I have a wonderful wife, two amazing children, and then three grandchildren. Um, so I don't know what else you want to know. <laughs> That's good. A very full life. Um, so you've lived in America and in France. Yes, I, I actually grew up in Paris, uh, so spoke French before English. Amazing. And um, so it was natural for us to go back when this Reformed Seminary opened up in Aix-en-Provence, and they needed a professor of apologetics who, who could speak French. And is your wife French as well? She speaks very well. She's not. Um, okay. But she... Um, she spent a lot of time in in Europe, Italy, uh, Switzerland, and France. So uh, we're both very much at home there. Uh, now, you've written several books. Um, you've written Schaefer on the Christian Life, Created and Creating, and you've got a new book coming out on jazz, um, and I'm sure there's some books I've missed. But um, So I thought we could cover some of those topics today. Um, Fine. So, to begin with, Schaefer, uh, I was, the, I've read several of the, the uh, Theologian on the Christian Life books, and I was pleased when I opened up Schaefer on the Christian Life to find that you knew Schaefer personally. Yes, he led me to the Lord when I was about 19 years old. I wandered up to Labrie, as many di agnostics did and um, met him and had long, long conversations with him, and he convinced me about the Christian faith. So, And we remained friends for the re remainder of his life. Mm. So I knew him very well. What, what was he like as a person? Gracious, kind, brilliant, um, always interested in what you were doing rather than in touting him himself mm. um, obviously if you asked him the right questions he would give you all kinds of strong views on his favorite subjects but um, what out, what stood out to me was his his kindness okay so like genuinely interested in in other people and caring for them yeah yeah that's right that's, that was a characteristic of Labrie altogether. They were 
Um, we, you know, we had hundreds of people up there from all kinds of different backgrounds. And, and Fran and Edith Schaefer always showed an extraordinary interest in, in each one who came up in their personalities, their backgrounds, their talents. So um, one felt very welcome there. Mm. It's quite a rare trait, isn't it? Well, I'm sorry to say it is, especially these days. Um, in those days, I think it was a little more common, but nevertheless, uh, combined with his extraordinary acumen and his sharp mind, um, it was a it was a very rich combination, uh, kindness and brilliance. Mm. Now, on the, on the brilliance front, he. Schaefer's written volumes of works. Um, do, do you think he's still relevant today? The world's changed a lot. That's a time. very good question, yeah. I, I do, actually. Um, I think um, some of the examples he uses are out of date, uh, but his concerns are not out of date. And what I love about him was his... Uh, enthusiastic for worldview thinking, uh, his fresh outlook on all of life. And that, I think, lasts. Um, and there's um, something like 10 Labris in the world. One of them is right in Sydney. Um, it's a non-residential Labris. But um, I think that's a, a testimony to the the ongoing uh actuality of 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 his approach um some of it looks pretty passe when you first encounter it like he did a a film which was not a good film if i can i worked on it so i can say that uh you know he shows up in his climbing outfit and the, on one scene, there's a wire coming out of his trousers, and it just just wasn't professional. Um, so some of what he's done looks retro, but the content is is not. It's the content's very strong and very up to date. It was at the film. <coughs> Sorry, the film. How how should we then live? That's right. Yeah, which was going off his book. Uh, or we, which one came first, actually, the, the film or the book? No, the book came first. You're okay. right. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, maybe before we get to the, the culture element, which sort of feeds in through how should we then live, out of if, if someone were new to Schaefer um, and had never heard of him before or hadn't read him before, where would you recommend that they start? I would say probably the three early in introductory books, uh, How Shall We Then Live, uh, The God Who Is There, mm. and uh, maybe um, Escape From Reason, okay. which was a kind of riff off of uh, Doyavird's histori historiography. And other a couple of other books too, like um, Death in the City, uh, Pollution and the Death of Man, those are those are good places to be introduced to him. Yeah, is there some aspect of his thinking that you find particularly unique? 
Yeah, as I said earlier, I, I think his excitement about applying the gospel to all of life. Right. Uh, many scholars part company with him on some of the details, and that's fair enough. But um, he had this extraordinary uh, enthusiasm about applying the gospel to every part of life, the arts, business, um, and of course, central things like um, evangelistic concerns. So that, that's what I think endures. Um, another less tangible uh, aspect is the life at Labrie in Switzerland, which was the first branch of the uh, Christian community, which he founded. Um, you know, we, there was a great deal of prayer. Um, we worked in the morning and studied in the afternoon, long meals with uh, great conversations, seminars at night. Um, it, was, it was a unique experience. Uh, some people have called it a retreat. He didn't like that word, but it was sort of a place to get away and live um, in, in community. Uh, before community and communes were were kind of popular in the 60s. Right. So it was, after your experience at Labrie then and, and sort of encountering this intense dialogue and personal interaction, has that shaped how you've lived your life um, and how? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, I have enthusiastic views about applying the gospel to all of life. <laughs> that has stayed with me. Uh, my prayer life is not as good as it should be, but uh, it's an, an inspiration to think back to how we used to pray intensely. Um, and my views of the church include his uh, suggestions and occasionally his admonitions about uh, the, the church and its life. Um, the, the other thing is, when I actually communicate the gospel to unbelievers, uh, his approach, his conversations are ringing in my ears. Um, and I think he had a unique way of uh, finding the question behind the question and um, helping, helping anyone, whosoever, identify places of need and emptiness and uh, hunger. And uh, when, when I, at my best, I do that. I'm, I'm not as good as he was. And, um, and I certainly don't want to try to imitate him the way some people tried to imitate him, including his clothing style and his expression. <laughs> no, it's not healthy. No one, you don't wear knickerbockers? <laughs> I don't wear knickerbockers, and I don't have uh, ascots, which was he, he liked ascots better than neckties. Uh, yes, and yet, you know, it's just it was embarrassing. Some some students came away because of his power and his influence, using expressions that just weren't natural. Yeah. Um, how long will man 
swear up and down God's universe. Well, we just don't talk like that. It was it was natural for him. Um, and uh, but um, you got to develop your own way of doing things. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, and you've got some interesting examples in Schaefer on the Christian life where you illustrate his approach, um, which I found quite helpful. Uh, Good. One last question on Schaefer. Um, what was his training like? And how, how did he come to sort of have this grasp on the interaction of Christianity and, and life? Yeah, um, it's a hard question to answer. It was eclectic. Um, he did go to seminary. He spent a year at Westminster and then finished his work at an alternative seminary in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, he was widely read, visited museums all the time. But uh, if you're a PhD in a particular discipline, you're likely to be disappointed with uh, his approach and his views on certain things. He might have been right, but at the same time, uh, it was so informal and shooting from the, the hip that you, you might have been disappointed. Uh, and his, he will claim, he will have claimed that his training was in practice. Right. through conversations with hundreds of people. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was kind of proud of the fact that he didn't go through the standard academic training. Um, so that, that he had an eclectic background. Um, yeah, I find it interesting that he, like I think you mentioned, he just read copious amounts of things, different articles yeah. and books and... Um, had just had an interest in life in general and in thought. Um, what's what's your what's your reading habits been like throughout your life? How have you found? Yes, I'm, reading? I'm one of those dreadful people who are trained in academics, and I read uh, lots and lots and lots in different fields. Um, but um, the difference between me and Shaper is that he he would read books and articles that people would send him. Ah. And, uh, I, you know, I don't do that. I mean, of course, if I, <laughs> I see a great review, I'll, I'll pick the book up. But, um, yeah, my, my reading habits are definitely more uh, academic. Right, yeah. Um, now, Schaefer wasn't the only interesting person you were acquainted with because um, when you moved to Westminster and started studying there, you trained under Cornelius Van Til. I met and encountered many interesting people in my life, um, beginning with my childhood. And um, they're all precious and important. And you're quite right. Um, now, I went to Westminster in the 60s as a theological student. And I took every course that Van Til taught and was uh, greatly influenced by him and got to know him as a person. And uh, when I came back to teach here, he was, he was gone. Right. Um, and uh, yet his imprint is all over the place. So, yeah, I've met a, a good many interesting people. I've had a great privilege there. 
Now, I haven't had the chance to read much Fantil or any. Um, should should I? What should I read? Why should I read him? What was <laughs> what was interesting about Van? Fantil? Yeah. Well, a um, couple of things to say. I think his his writings are very important. Um, probably his most fundamental book is called The Defense of the Faith. Right. Um, my favorite little book of his is called My Credo, which is where he explains his upbringing and his faith in the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, but he's also written a, a good deal on other subjects. One of his major concerns was um, the critique of Bart and Bartian thinking. Um, I'd have to add, uh, which I've said in print, that he's he's a he's a tough go. Um, a because he wasn't a natural writer, and many of his books came out of class notes. Okay. And B because he was polemical in a way that many people today don't don't appreciate. Um, what, what do you mean by that? You know he. He would take, he would make a point and then say, here's how Roman Catholics do it. Here's how uh, Armenians do it and so forth. And um, a lot of my students, until they began to see that what he was doing, uh, just didn't appreciate that. It was, it sounded to them like um, he was uh, shooting down um, a lot of good people without giving them credit. I don't think he was doing that, but that's the way sometimes it comes across. So I, I would I would read Defense of the Faith, um, Common Grace and the Gospel, and then when you're much more advanced, start reading his, his stuff on Bart, which is very polemical. Okay. That's helpful. Thank you. Um, yep. Now, you're an uh, apologist. Schaefer, I guess, had an apologetic bent. Uh, and Van Til, I've often heard his name, Van Tillian Apologetics, they seem to go together. Um, what is apologetics um, and what would be your approach to it? Oh, my. Well... Just a small one. <laughs> yeah, a succinct, a succinct definition would be it's the defense and commendation of the Christian faith. Um, apologetics, as you probably know, is it's a legal word, goes back into Greek culture, and it means something like setting one up for defense, getting one off of a charge. Uh, so you can think of Plato, um, his defense of Socrates, um, that's, you know, it, that's apologetics. Um, so it's had a long history uh, and has gone through many different phases. And uh, I think today we're in a fairly exciting phase where we're moving into cultural and sociological areas without giving up the basic philosophy that's behind apologetics. Um, in the, in the medieval times, uh, it was so tied to philosophy that 
uh, it was a discipline that appropriated people like Aristotle and, and others and tried to Christianize them. And there was some usefulness to that, but it was, uh, it's, it would be pretty ineffective today, except with a very narrow group of people. So you, you said that it, it's, apologize, is moving into this stage of engaging with sociological and cultural issues. What, right. what does that look like? What, what do you mean by that? Well, um, a lot of credit goes to Oz Guinness, whom you may have heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, he, um, after his time at Labrie, went to Oxford to do his doctorate, and he studied um, under several people that were concerned to set ideas in their social context. And his doctoral dissertation was, was on uh, Peter Berger, who is, was probably the outstanding sociologist of religion in the 20th century. And um, his, his thesis was that Berger's sociology was highly applicable to the task of apologetics. So to give you an idea, just one of Berger's insights um, was to see the relation between ideas and institutions. Um, and um, he, he was not a Marxist because Marx reduced ideas to institutions, but he had in common with Marx a concern to relate ideas to institutions. Uh, just a quick example, if you look at the city of Paris, there's the right bank and the left bank. And the right bank is where all the fashion stores are, the businesses, the, the movies. The left bank is where all the murky cafes are and, and bookstores and, and so on. And uh, Guinness makes the point that Jean-Paul Sartre's existentialism would never have been born in the right bank, but it was born in a natural way in the left bank. In fact, it was literally born in a back room in a couple of the cafes. And uh, Guinness says, unless we take into account uh, what he calls structures of plausibility, um, our apologetics will be empty uh, it, it will be an in-house la- language for just a, a rarefied group of people, but it won't, it won't convince, it won't persuade. So what, what you're saying, I, I think, let me, let me just sort of play it back to you to see if I'm getting you right. Um, sure. You, you're saying that a, each individual sees the world in a particular way and you have to be conscious of that in order to communicate effectively to that person. Yeah, that's good. Um, in other words, if you try to preach the gospel in a medieval way, uh, you can give airtight reasons why Aristotle's five proofs lead to a first cause, an unmoved mover, and so forth. But it won't persuade very many people 
first of all, God is not an unmoved mover. He's, he's the creator God of the Bible. But more importantly, um, those proofs are wonderful, rational formulas, which almost no one thinks in terms of unless they're a professional philosopher. Whereas if you, if you help people to see that um, Christianity comes out or philosophy for that matter, worldviews, both positive and negative come out of uh, social and historical situations, you know, to be really simplistic secularization or uh, pluralism or whatever then um, you're likely to get people's attention. Um, and the church becomes very important. It's the pri- premier structure of plausibility that the, that the Bible gives us, that Jesus gives us. Um, and so, for example, one of the reasons that uh, people like, uh, I don't know, Tim Keller have been so effective is because his message has been, it's a great message, but it's been church-based community-based, involved with uh, people who are uh, out there in the city trying to figure life out and so forth. And um, that's, I think, in addition to sound arguments, which you need, um, sensitivity to the context is all important. And, you know, missiologists have known this for a long time um, and have practiced it on the mission field. But uh, sometimes the ordinary Christian who comes from an evangelical background um, hasn't been as aware of that and is sort of steeped in the older arguments, maybe not Aristotle, but evidential thinking and, and so on. So would, would that essentially mean that as, a, as an everyday Christian, in order to engage with my neighbors, I should probably read a few things on today's culture and where people are coming from, potentially even from a Christian perspective, like here's someone who's gone and grappled with with society and then in, and shown you how the Christian faith relates to that. Um, oh, it, it does mean that. Um, okay. I think if you don't uh, read about context and history, um you're going to sound like you're from another planet and um, you just won't be heard. Yeah, that's helpful. And then that, that's interesting too um, from a, a sort of preaching perspective. You mentioned Tim Keller. Um, like if it seems to me by what you're saying, if the church is always talking in its own language and its own uh, isolated context and not engaging with the world from the pulpit even, then you're going you're to end up with a people who, a group of Christians at that church who don't know how to talk to their neighbor about Christianity because it's, it's yeah, so divorced exactly. from society. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, Dick Kais calls it tribalism. Huh. Uh, you know, people uh, operate in their tribes and uh, evangelical Christians, I don't know about Australia, but in North America, um, some of them don't realize there's a larger world out there, and uh, they're not able to interact with 
the challenges of that larger world because they've been living in, in their own tribe. They're comfortable with their language, their hymns, um, their traditions, homeschooling, all the rest of it. Uh, so, you know, it's not a call to go out and, you know, be a worker priest or anything like that, but we have to understand the times. Uh, I read a lot of history um, and some sociology and culture studies in order, because I am interested, but also in order to, to understand where we are in our times. Uh, just an, a brief example, um, we all remember how joyful 1989 was when communism fell in many parts of the world. Only 10 or 15 years later, the joy was gone. And um, why? And I think there are good historical reasons for that. Um, the conflicts in the Balkans, um, the failure of uh, rebels to overcome the Chinese hegemony and, and uh, symbolized by Tiananmen Square um, and the cultural forces of indifference and secularization so that, you know, unless we understand uh, that we're not living in 1989, when it, which was very exciting, uh, we're going to be ineffective. Mm. Yeah, that's Francis hard. Fukuyama. I don't know if you're familiar with Francis Fukuyama. No, very, well, he's a very bright um, Japanese um, historian who said in 1989, this was the end of history. Mm. Now, he didn't mean no more events would occur, but he said... This is, uh, people have come to democracy. There's no more real work to be done. Well, he was massively wrong. Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, just to take the rise of Islam, he, that's not the end of history. So um, I think Christians need to work on these issues and be conversant with them uh, in order to, to uh, persuade our generation. That's very helpful. Thank you. Um, now, we've been edging our way towards culture, um, and which is where you you have written, uh, created and creating. Um, and I think your new book on jazz will connect to this whole thing a little bit. Um, <clears throat> can you, I guess, begin by explaining how, why, why Christians, oh, maybe we should start with what is culture? Let's start there. Oh, this is a simple question. Um, culture is, um, it goes back to Genesis 1, where God called human beings literally to cultivate. There was an agrarian side, but there was a metaphorical side, which is to take the world as they encountered it and... Um, process it, understand it, or as Genesis puts it, to have dominion over it. Um, now, there's a long history to what happened to culture since then, um, but people are still in the process of uh, 
cultivating the world around them. So culture is cultivation. Um, and it's the air we breathe, it's the tasks we're given. Um, and a lot of people don't realize they're engaging in culture, whether they like it or not. So but a lot, there's lots of great definitions of culture. Uh, and in my book that you mentioned, um, Created and Creating, I, I, I review some of those. So, um, so culture then is the the way that man has dominion over the world and the result of that. Yeah. Yep. Um, the th- three things in the first in the calling, which I think have stayed intact and are actually etymologically related to the word culture. First is cultivation and um, having loving gentle dominion over the over the world the second oddly is colonization now that's a bad word in a lot of places but um it means going out sharing the wealth of your gifts with the gifts of other people that you encounter um when paul said you know god has made from one all people, and he set them in their territory to grope after him if happily they should find him. That's colonization. And then the third is cult worship. Um, mm. I, I think culture has to be related to uh, what you worship. And there's a lot of insights into that with some of the younger philosophers today. Um, so uh, cultivation uh colonization and cult uh still belong to our cultural endeavors and i guess that that sort of highlights that we're we're always going to be creating culture like you said we're always going to be doing something sharing something and worshiping something um and that clearly christians should do those things differently to non-Christians. Yep, very well put. Yep. Um, so then, how do, you, how do you work with... We're, we're Christians in this, in this world. There is a, um, a culture that is shifting and, and moving in a particular direction, and then as Christians we want to engage with that culture, but we also want to be creating a... We want to we want to be doing culture in a slightly different way, or maybe a radically different way. How do we deal with this this tension of living in and, I guess, engaging in culture as a Christian as well? Yeah, well, you know, if you had three weeks, I could give you some <laughs> ideas. Give me a little taste. But, uh, <laughs> no, I know. Um, how do we do it? Is no different in one way from how you live the Christian life as reflected in the New Testament teaching of being salt and light, uh, treating your servants well, raising your children well, um, worshiping God aright, uh, working and not relying on, you know, society for your income and just all of those things. And, um, uh, 
what is the fruit of culture should be gathered to God's glory. Um, there's a wonderful passage in the book of Revelation. It says kings come marching into the new Jerusalem yeah. with their with the glory of the nations. So well, what is that glory? Well, it's treasure. It's you know using old ang- language of of booty, um, and uh, that's what wh- where we ought to be. We ought to be uh, creating, as you suggested, alternative cultures. Uh, to challenge the world whose culture is often um, alien mm. to the principles of the gospel. So I, I don't think we should engage in uh, violent culture wars where there's white hats and black hats, because uh, I think that those make the two sides too, too much of a military w- conflict. But I do think we should identify the places in society where uh, the gospel is needed and um, live as salt and light, um, or as one recent author suggested, live as priests um, in in the culture, bringing what is discovered to the feet of the cross. Those are very abstract ways of putting our daily tasks. But, but I think that's what we need to be doing. Yeah, I like that. So essentially you're saying that the Christian life is is one where your hands get dirty. Um, you should work yeah. as a Christian. You should marry as a Christian. And that that will, as you do those things, as you raise your kids as a Christian in the changing of nappies and feeding of mouths and these sorts of things, you will... Uh, if you're if you're purposeful about that and and worshipful about that, you will create something of a Christian culture around wow. you. That's that's really well put. You should write your own book. <laughs> no, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, no, that's that's really helpful. And then um, I love that passage in Revelation. Uh, would the way I read that was that. I I preached on it recently and I encouraged people to think about their work and their art and all of these things as it when when we create culture that is most glorifying to God something of that will translate into the new heavens and new earth. Would That's right. Would that be whatever too strong that something is. You know, yes. people ask what's the music <laughs> going to be like in heaven? Uh, I, I wish I knew. Uh, it might be Bach cantatas, or it might be um, African dance music, or it might be something completely fresh and new. But there, to put it your way, there is something of a continuity between what we do and what we will be in the, the new heavens and new earth. Uh, unlike some theologies that say it's all going to be destroyed. Yeah. Uh, why bother? Uh, you know, don't polish the brass on the Titanic. Um, so yeah, there's a continuity and, and it just means that what we do, whether we eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. And, um, there'll be some lasting fruit to that, whatever it is going to look like. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. And now just lastly, the, you've got a new book coming out 
very soon. Um, it may have just it's been it's released, already out. Just released. It just came out last week. There you go. Takes a while to come to Australia, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's on jazz, and, and I find this interesting because, uh, and this relates back to Schaefer where we started. I think, at least in my upbringing, my understanding of Reformed Christianity, the idea of beauty has been lost a little bit. Um, and so, what what role do the arts play in the Christian life? Um, is there a biblical basis for that, for, for art being something that's valuable and of, of interest? To Christians, we need an, we need another three weeks for that one. But uh, I like yeah, big questions. Uh, yeah, you do. It's good. It's an important questions. Um, well, I'll, to start with the obvious, uh, the arts are a great gift. Uh, they're not a, an option. Um, they're a gift, and all of us should have an aesthetic sense. Not all of us should be professional artists. Um, but the environment that God has placed us in does need to be beautified. Um, and I think jazz music at its best uh, does that. Zora Neale Hurston, who's marvelous black author of the 20th century, called it finding beauty in the ashes. Mm-hmm. Because black people who produced this art suffered so much, but in the ashes, uh, there there was um, beauty if you know where to find it. So um, yeah, the arts have a huge place to play, and uh, reform people have been slow but not completely silent on this. Um, when I was at Labrie, there was a chap named Hans Ruckmacher who had written extensively on visual art and on jazz of all things. So he was a Dutch art historian. Um, I don't completely agree with all of his, uh, his views, but he had the great virtue of uh, bringing to our attention the, uh, the role of the arts, the, the atmosphere that we live in. And he, some of it was very basic, you know. What kind of pictures do you have hanging in your living room? Um, when you go to an art museum, what do you see? And some of it was much more abstract, uh, like um, how do you order your life in an aesthetic fashion uh, by encouraging artists, um, practicing uh, various arts and so on. So, and he was reformed. Um, There's been plenty of developments since, um, perhaps in a more disciplined, rigorous way. Um, I think my favorite philosopher of art is Calvin Seervelt, who for years taught in Toronto at the Institute for Christian Studies. And he's written extensively on um, the, the way the, the arts shapes our thinking, um, how to encourage painters, uh, just lots and lots of writing. And um, he's still with us. He's 90-something. And I think people like that, um, think of Mako Fujimura, who is an abstract expressionist. 
who's a wonderful reformed Christian. I mean, things are happening. Uh, it's very slow. And a lot of Christians still have the idea, well, it's a luxury or it's a waste of time or it's something that you you do when in your in your leisure time. And uh, that I think that ne- needs to be combated very strongly. Do you have uh, like a an introductory book that you would generally sort of give to someone if if they're wanting to understand the role of art in the Christian life? Wow, let's see. That's a that's a really good question. I guess um, probably Calvin Seerfeld's. I try to get the title right. Bringing fresh olive branches. Okay. These Dutch guys always had fun titles. <laughs> um, that's probably the one that I would give first to just awaken people to the role of of the arts. And he has a whole section on beauty in there, and um, he's got lots of other books. He, he, they um, they did a festschrift in his honor. Uh, it, it had also the fascinating title of something like Pledges of Jubilee. <laughs> but um, it's a really good book with all kinds of um, suggestions on the arts. And then he, one of his first books, um, now what was it called? It was a simpler title. Um, uh, it, it had to do with introducing all kinds of dimensions of art to ordinary life. Um, it was something like art in a fallen world or something. So the word fallen was in there. Okay. Um, I'm getting older, so I'm forgetting these things. Uh, that's all right. That's, that's very helpful. I'll, I'll hunt down those two. Yeah, do that. Yeah. Calvin Seervelt. Yeah, S-E-R-R. V E L D. Okay. He uh, he grew up. His father was a fishmonger in Long Island, and this kid has a deep respect for uh, people who work with their hands and so on. But he went on to be a brilliant scholar, and uh, then to teach at the Toronto Institute. Well, last question for you, Doctor Edgar been a fascinating sure. discussion feel like we could chat for hours but um what do you like about jazz oh my another three <laughs> weeks coming up why do you like jazz why do i like it i mean to um, the untrained ear it sounds like chaos right i, I like jazz i i was played in a jazz band in high school but what what is it that you like about jazz well the the thesis of my book is that it in musical form, it expresses deep sorrow moving towards indistinguishable, inextinguishable joy. And um, that goes for all kinds of expressions of jazz, from New Orleans um, to the best of swing to bebop. Uh, and um, jazz, because of this narrative, uh, has a certain spontaneous creativity to it, um, which is just a great joy to, to listen to. Um, I don't know what else to say. 
Um, oh, that's you remember Nietzsche? Sorry, gone. Nietzsche Nietzsche said something like, "If there's if there were no music, life would be a mistake." Nietzsche said. Well, that. I think Nietzsche said. I know he says the thing right. Uh, <laughs> I I like to say, if there were no jazz, life would be a monumental error, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you'll just have to read the book to see how I defend its its uh well, you've its sold, propriety. You've sold me there, and uh, that that actually makes sense given what, how you see the the music of jazz. To a statement I heard you make in an interview, where you said that you do um, gospel presentations mixed with jazz. Yeah. To to illustrate as you go. Yeah, I um, I used to be in a. Uh, a trio that traveled quite widely. And our vocalist was um, an extraordinary gospel singer, jazz singer. Um, and we would go through the history of African-American people and how they produced this music and um, give examples of, of the music to people who often had no idea of what jazz was. Um, perhaps among the most moving experiences we had was going to Eastern Europe, um, and we and people in the audience literally started weeping when we played the blues um, because they had suffered so much under communism. They identified perfectly with um, the slaves that produced the blues. So. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm getting, I'm too old to do that now and I, my legs don't work, but I, I did that a lot of my life and, um, uh, it's one of the joys, uh, of, uh, what, what, what the Lord has allowed us to do. Well, Dr. Edgar, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Uh, thank you for your time. Um, and thank, and, uh, congratulations on your recent retirement and, uh, I hope, and pray the Lord gives you many more years of uh, enjoyment of his good good creation and fruitful labors as well in whatever it is that he has planned for you. Thank you, brother. That means a lot. Okay. And you've been listening to the Reformers Bookcast, uh, and you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time. <laughs>